The family said she was a tireless champion of democracy. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. We're creeping towards the end of the week, Thursday the 24th of March. This is Money Talk on Radio 3, and I'm Peter Lewis. The number of new coronavirus cases in Hong Kong eased further yesterday, with authorities reporting 12,240 new COVID cases. Chief Executive Carrie Lam stressed that resuming quarantine-free travel with mainland China was still the main goal, despite the recent suspension of plans for a citywide compulsory testing drive. Financial Secretary Paul Chan said the government plans to hold an international financial forum during the Hong Kong Rugby Sevens tournament in November. He said he expects to invite up to 200 top executives from the mainland and overseas to watch rugby, hold meetings and see for themselves how vibrant the city is. Mr Chan said this will make them more confident about stepping up investments in Hong Kong. UK inflation hit 6.2% in February, the highest level since March 1992, on surging food, fuel and energy prices. Finance Minister Rishi Sunak said in his spring statement yesterday that he would cut fuel duty, raise the threshold at which people start paying national insurance and pledge to cut the basic rate of income tax from 20% to 19% before the next general election. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Louisa Fock at the Bank of Singapore. Speaking about renewable energy targets in Asia is Phineas Glover of Credit Suisse. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US and European stocks gave up some of their recent gains yesterday as oil prices rose, adding to growing inflation fears. The S&P 500 index, which had gained almost 6% in the previous five sessions, fell 1.2% Wednesday in a broad-based decline to 4,456. The Dow lost 449 points, ending the day at 34,358, and the Nasdaq slipped 1.3% to 13,923. The Pan-European Stock 600 index gave up 1%. London's FTSE 100 fell a quarter of a percent. Hong Kong stocks ended yesterday with more gains, with tech firms leading the advances. The Hang Seng Index added 1.2%, or 265 points, to hit a three-week high of 22,154. The Tech Index jumped 2.1%. The Shanghai Composite rose a third of a percent to 3,271, with some help from the national team. Revenue growth at Tencent was hit in the fourth quarter of 2021 by China's regulatory crackdown and a slowdown in online advertising. Tencent said revenue rose 8% to 144.2 billion yuan in the quarter ended December the 31st. That's its slowest growth since going public in 2004. Adjusted profits fell by a quarter to 24.9 billion yuan as costs rose and ad sales slowed. And revenue for the full year rose 16%, also its slowest ever pace. 
Despite slower revenue growth, Tencent's net profit for the fourth quarter climbed 60% to 94.9 billion renminbi, helped as the company booked a 78 billion yuan gain from divesting its stake in Chinese commerce group JD.com during the quarter. In New York, Tencent's ADRs fell over 5% last night. Oil exports from a crucial pipeline were fully halted on Wednesday, cutting 1.4 million barrels a day from global oil markets. The Caspian Pipeline Consortium, the Moscow headquartered group, running a 1,500-kilometer pipeline which links oil fields in Kazakhstan with Russia's Black Sea coast, said on Wednesday that it was shutting down all three units used to load oil from the pipeline onto tankers, blaming storm damage. Brent crude oil jumped 6% higher to $121.44 a barrel, taking its gains to 56% this year. And European gas prices soared after President Vladimir Putin said Russia will seek payments in rubles for gas sales from unfriendly countries. Russian gas accounts for some 40% of Europe's total consumption. Gas futures tied to TTF, Europe's wholesale gas price, surged as much as 30% yesterday before closing 9% higher and prices are six times higher than a year ago. Gold is up 1.3%. At $1,946 an ounce. The US 10 year Treasury bond yield surpassed 2.41% at its session high, but ended the day nine basis points lower at 2.29%. The euro is at $1.10. The buck's trading at 121 Japanese yen. Sterling dropped 0.4% against the dollar to $1.33 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 33 cents after Chancellor Rishi Sunak revealed in his spring statement that the Office for Budget Responsibility had slashed its economic growth forecast for the UK this year from 6% to 3.8%. The Chinese yuan sits at 6.39 in offshore markets and Bitcoin is trading at $42,400. Asian stock markets are opening to the downside this morning in Australia, the SX200 down 0.2%, the Nikkei 225 off 1.3% at the open, the Cosby in South Korea down about three quarters of a percent and futures markets indicating losses of about 220 points for the Hang Seng at the open. Eight oh nine and a half. Let's welcome our guests, our regular Thursday commentator, personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Farr. Morning, Enzio. Good morning to you, Peter. And joining him this morning is Louisa Falk, China equity strategist at the Bank of Singapore. Morning, Louisa. Morning, Peter. Uh, let's start in Hong Kong. The number of new coronavirus cases has eased further with 12,240 new cases. Uh, Chief Executive Carrie Lam stressed yesterday that resuming quarantine-free travel with mainland China was still the main goal, despite the recent suspension of plans for a citywide compulsory testing drive. And Financial Secretary Paul Chan says the government plans to hold an international financial forum during the Hong Kong Rugby Sevens tournament in November. He expects to invite up to 200 top executives from the mainland and overseas to see for themselves how vibrant the city is. And he said this will make them more confident about stepping up investments in Hong Kong. So, Enzio, in light of all of this, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? There is no tunnel. There's a ghost town. What's happened is that anybody who has the audacity to refer to this as my government, this is what Mrs. Lam has done, she's on the record saying this yet again, 
and is being so aloof, she hasn't even visited Penny's Bay or any of these hell holes that she's put people into, is really at risk of, of, and she has ruined Hong Kong, I'm afraid, in a big way. At least she's scarred it a great deal. So for then to, to then expect all of a sudden, like Merlin, the, the magician coming in with the magic wand for some youngsters to play some rugby and then to get 200 paid guests to show up and say how vibrant the city is, is really a little bit much, I think, a little bit rich. I mean, does she think that we're all serfs here who have no brains or what's the problem? So when you say um, she's damaged Hong Kong, in what way has Hong Kong been damaged, do you think, most of all? Well, one, the total credibility of, of the places out the window because of the strip-flopping on policy. Secondly, the um, arrogance of not listening to experts such as Professor Gabrielle Leung and others, even also in the business community, before implementing policies. Thirdly, um, the just this, this high-handed idea that she can control viruses, that she can give viruses a visa, an entry permit, and an exit permit. Nature does what it wants, and you can't do a deal with nature. So I'm afraid even having even more testing at huge costs is not going to do anything for anybody except make somebody very rich. So can this damage be repaired and reversed? What needs to no, be done? No, absolutely not. Sorry to interrupt. This is a scar that you, people, it's a little bit like working from home that we've all done. Now we've got used to it. People have gone abroad. Most of them will stay abroad because the, the attitude of this government, because it belongs to Mrs. Lamb, um, is very much that of business unfriendly and policy unfriendly. And that's, I'm afraid, is going to, it's, she's really ruined Hong Kong is my, is my very sad conclusion. Okay. Louisa, what do you think of the economic impacts on, on Hong Kong, first of all, of the restrictions we're seeing, but also there are some signs, aren't they, that those restrictions are starting to be eased? Are there going to be enough uh, to, to try and get Hong Kong's economy? Well, certainly it's going to be in contraction this quarter, possibly in next quarter as well. Um, yeah, thank you, Peter. I, I think it will take time for for these um, easing of the policy to have an impact on the economy. Uh, I mean, if you look at the February Hong Kong PMI, already showing like uh, the biggest uh, drop or or what, at the lowest level ever uh, since April 2020. Uh, I think it shows the sign. Uh, but I think uh, some of the medical experts also comment that, you know, some of the um, ways or paths that Hong Kong could take, uh, given the scientific or medical views, how these uh, uh, COVID is likely to be evolved. Um, so I, I think at least uh, we are making some fine-tuning in, in terms of the policy. Uh, but uh, I, I do believe that uh, uh, all these uh, easing of the is restrictions is, go is going to be gradually uh, to be implemented. And therefore, uh, definitely the impact on the economy will also take time uh, to recover as well. Um, do you think the restrictions are being eased fast enough because a lot of businesses have now gone under, haven't they? So it's too late for them. But what is the risk that we see further damage and a further pickup in unemployment? Um, I think unemployment uh, data is unlikely to be uh, rosy, um, given like all the things that you uh, and, and other guests have commented. But I think to a certain extent, how quickly that it could recover is also depends on also any, any further disruption as the medical expert has also highlighted that, you know, that they're going to be like the sixth wave 
and and so on and so forth. So I think it's how the policy uh, reactions or or in on also like the fine tuning in terms of how how does this would impact on the unemployment and the economy as well. Enzio, the latest data showed unemployment rose to 4.5% uh, in February. That's the highest level now since September 2021. Uh, the government has announced some unemployment support schemes, an extension of the unemployment support scheme. Um, is it enough to try and help people get back to work? Well, I think it will certainly make the executives at, at um, Chung Kong and um, Jardines busier because they... A lot of this money will be going into places like Watsons and Mannings, etc. So it's, a, it's another cool $60 billion being thrown away. Um, and I can't imagine that Xi Jinping sees this as any way of getting social stability just by chucking, by, by shutting the place down, killing the businesses, and then giving a bunch of serfs some money, a little bit of money, to then hopefully tide them over for the next week or two. So I'm afraid as an economist, I can't give this my blessing in the least. And it is yet another reason why we will have a tax hike here by 2027 latest. So you think, I mean, we've got still substantial reserves, haven't we? But you, you think we're going to have to have tax rises at some point to pay well, for all of this? Yes, because the substantial reserves have gone out the window with very large white elephants that we all know about, with subsidy, with, with the other... Um, giving of of, of 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 monies to companies that don't need it, but the companies have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to take the money if the government is as stupid as to give it to them, frankly. Mm. Um, then you have um, a bunch of workers who will just restock their savings. So, um, and that's another 60 billion. So 60 billion here, 800 billion there, 200 billion there. Then we've got some cultural projects, etc., going on. So, I don't see how we're going to keep the money. I'm not, I don't think that anybody in this government has ever listened to one person in the business community how that one and one makes two and one minus one makes zero, not plus six. You're, you're sounding very pessimistic about the, the future of Hong Kong, but why can't we bounce back? If we look at what's happened elsewhere in the world when other places have, have opened up finally, um, eased their restrictions. We've seen big rebounds in their, in their economies. We've seen employment pick up again. Couldn't Hong Kong do the same? Well, of course, we will bounce back to a very, very low base. So the base effect will be, which, which is basically that if you, it's easier to jump back from two than it is from 60. Um, yes, of course, we will bounce back from the pure numbers, but certainly not from the lacking credibility in the international business community. A lot of these firms, the international big boys, they're moving down to Singapore. Not that we're great fans of Singapore, but at least they've done something right. They've had a vision. They've had consistent policies. Um, and I don't think that a lot of them plan to come back to Hong Kong just because once bitten, twice shy, I'm afraid. Louisa, let me ask you about the, the markets here, the, uh, the, the local markets. What are your thoughts? We saw a bottom last week when Hong Kong stocks started to look very, very oversold and very cheap. Do you think a bottom has been put in now and we're seeing a sustainable rebound from here? Mm, thank you, Peter. Um, 
I think one of the major things for the rebound that we are seeing from our market actions perspective is uh, what happened at least from last week. Majority of those uh, would have been concentrated on the short covering. Uh, starting from this week, we started to see some of the what we call the long only uh, buying. And, and more recently, we are seeing the southbound from the stock connect has turned into net buyers. Mm-hmm. I think for the rally to be more sustainable, I think a few things need to be happened. Uh, first of all, it, it's very encouraging that the Vice Premier Leo has addressed uh, all the key issues directly. Um, and out of those, we do believe that there are certain that could be implemented relatively effectively and efficiently, especially those that are related to the macroeconomy, uh, monetary policy, as he himself uh, basically focuses and in charge of these areas. Having said that, I think uh, two more things need to be happened. Uh, that would require uh, some of those what we so-called uh, the, the, the issues that will re- require more coordination uh, among different uh, government uh, authorities. Uh, for instance, and um, uh, some of the more coordinated efforts, how to deal with the real estate, uh, especially um, March and April will be another major maturity peak for the China real estate bond uh, for both onshore and offshore. Uh, a lot of those the policies that have been announced has been addressed on the demand side, for instance, lowering the benchmark of the mortgages, say, the loan prime rate five year. But um, I do believe that the market would need to see a little bit more uh, actions or policy addressing the supply side, especially for the developers' liquidity uh, uh, pressure. Um, that that's one. Uh, secondly, and more importantly, are those issues that would require uh, coordination with other countries, and and that are uh, what I'm uh, specifically referring will be the Chinese ADRs, uh, the auditing. Uh, and also the delisting issues. Um, it's encouraging to see the CSRC comment that, you know, U.S. and China are working. Uh, but I think uh, as we have seen, um, as and when more companies file the annual report, um, the more companies are likely to be put on the provisional list uh, yeah. to watch out for. And therefore, uh, some kind of concrete plan or uh, a master plan, some kind of directions with some actionable time uh, items and time frame uh, will probably be needed uh, as to show like uh, the, the issues mm. uh, has, has been moving on uh, and is going to be addressed. And also, it's uh, oh. going to be another the sign for uh, some of the easing in terms of the U.S.-China uh, tension and relationship as well. NGO, do you think the State Council and Lu Ho addressed some of the key policy issues here and, and that's going to be enough to help support the markets? Uh, yes, I do. But I also think that there's a big ideological rift, according to the FT, between the regulatory boys in China. I think they call it the CAC. I don't speak Mandarin, mm. sadly. And then the growth team under this incredibly capable Le uh, Le Hui. Um, So I think that um, he certainly has addressed issues. But again, my overriding message is I just don't see how President Xi can see Mrs. Lam's government ensuring or indeed enhancing social Mm. stability in Hong Kong with the way that she's going because it is now her government after all.
Okay, thank you both very much. You heard their personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Fahl, Louisa Falk, China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Time's 8.22. The 25th Credit Suisse Asian Investment Conference continues today. And one of the speakers this morning will be Phineas Glover, head of ESG Securities Research for Asia Pacific at Credit Suisse. Phineas joins me on the line now. Good morning, Vin. Good morning, Peter. Um, let me ask you, obviously, the big topic at the moment is is Ukraine and surging uh, oil and gas and energy prices overall. I'm just wondering how much of that is is a game changer really to um government's efforts to to transition uh to to uh, sort of renewable energy and, uh, and address climate change yeah look it's we're certainly going through you know clearly an uncertain time i mean in, in terms of the energy transition i think um it's actually quite nuanced um there's more to it than perhaps meets the eye i think if you look at the eu response um actually there's a lot in the policy response, which now focuses on the demand side, we could make an argument that, uh, you know, the last five years of policy uh, extremely focused on the energy supply side, but, you know, we've not really addressed the demand side. Ukraine really, um, you know, is driving a, a, a much bigger reconsideration of, of the demand side. Now, things like, you know, um, building energy efficiency, um, our, you know, our actual consumption of fuel in cars, you know, right across the spectrum, um, home um, you know, heat pumps, insulation, these kinds of things can have an absolutely huge impact on demand. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I don't quite subscribe to the view, you know, uh, structural shortage of energy supply, Ukraine is a wake-up. Actually, you know, I'm actually on the other side of the debate, to be honest, Peter. I think um, actually COVID was a sort of temporary desynchronization of supply chain. Um, and Ukraine has certainly been a multiplier of that, but I don't think this is a, you know, this all adds up to, you know, let's all start investing in upstream capex and oil and gas, but certainly not what I'm really into it. Mm. Are, are we seeing demand destruction because of just how vertical this uh, this rise in, in crude oil and other commodities prices have, has gone? Well, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that's where we're going. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, you could argue, in a way, you know, the policy mix um, ultimately was kind of aiming at that. The underlying uh, mm. driver is to ultimately make those fossil fuels more expensive. Yeah. Now, that creates tension in the system. I'm not disputing that at all. Um, the current, you know, the current global geopolitical situation, if anything, has almost forced the hand, if you like, of you know, more expensive fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, countries are talking about replacing Russian oil and gas supplies with other sources of oil and gas. Why aren't they talking more about maybe a faster switch to renewables? Is this an opportunity for them and they're missing a trick here? Well, I, I certainly feel that's, that's what the EU policy response is focused on. You know, it's right across the board. So let's really accelerate capacity additions. Um, let's actually get rid of the bottlenecks. Um, let's make it easier. Don't forget that um, all, you know, all forms of new new projects, new new infrastructure, they they can take time. And you know, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that we should tear up the the rule book there, but certainly policymakers have realised that you know we really need to get behind um, you know, actually supporting these projects much quicker. Mm -hmm. So I think you know this is what what's been a 
you know, there's been policy support there, but what we're seeing now is that there's a kind of almost national, regional, um, you know, policy support. This is this is of such strategic importance that actually we're going to make it easier. We're going to we're going to support these capacity additions. So I, I think that's what we'll start to see. Uh, there are other issues. You know, it's not you know, it's easy for the EU to say that fine. You know, we've got a very established energy grid. Um, it's not quite as easy for ASEAN countries, for example. You know, they need to extend their grid. That takes time. We had an announcement yesterday from Beijing of a target to produce up to 200,000 tonnes per year of carbon-free green hydrogen by 2025. And they also said they want to have 50,000 hydrogen-fueled vehicles by that year as well. How significant is that? Certainly significant, yeah. You know, I mean, ultimately, we still rely on a huge amount of molecules-based um, power, right? You know, it's not just the grid. Mm. Um, and hydrogen certainly will play a role there. Um, you know, and, and we've certainly written a great deal on, on the hydrogen ecosystem, certainly, you know, big growth opportunities. But I think we just need to temper that with, um, in my view, you know, electrification ultimately will dominate in the energy transition. Um, that's the most... Um, you know, the, the cheaper of the transitions in terms of electrification and levelised cost of energy. But hydrogen will be absolutely critical um, to, you know, at the higher point of the cost curve in terms of decarbonisation. So marginal abatement cost curve, um, you know, higher cost of carbon will support hydrogen in heavy industrials. Um, so it's really, really critical for things like steel. You can only get so far um, with electric arc furnace. That has a big role to play, particularly in China. Uh, but ultimately, you need to get to a point where you can fuel those blast furnaces with green hydrogen. And so it's really those heavy industrials and those really heavy forms of transport that you need much more power, essentially. So so what is the, the next sort of like innovation, if you like, in, in renewables and, and new generation sort of energy efficiency? What should we be looking at? Well, I actually, you know, for me, I'm I'm more intrigued in the opportunities from energy efficiency. I think, yeah, it's a huge amount of focus on on energy supply, and, and absolutely, you know, we need to, you know, really invest in our research and development there. Um, not, you know, not understating that, but I think there's so much more we can achieve with some of the technologies we're starting to see. Um, you know, simply something like lighting, um, you know, LED technologies, the advancements we're seeing there, micro LEDs, um, and all you know, all the materials that will be needed to support that um, is hugely interesting. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think um, you know the technologies that support the demand side will be the next focus um, in markets, 100%. So, where, where are the investment opportunities in Asia in in this sector? Pretty broad. Pretty broad. Um, I mean, it, I mean, the headlines, you know, clearly for me, you know, EV, the whole ecosystem behind EVs, you know, that's 55% of oil demand. Uh, renewable energy on the supply side, um, you know, right across um, solar, wind, pumped hydro is particularly interesting. And then really a large-scale energy storage, um, you know, beyond just lithium-ion batteries, but actually looking at things like vanadium, that gives you much longer duration. Um, as I said before, all, the whole ecosystem of that are interesting investment opportunities, really, because, I mean, just to give you a, a very basic example, um, I think it's around about um, six times 
the material, you know, the minerals are needed for an EV um, you know, versus a, an internal combustion engine, around about nine times the materials are needed for a wind farm versus a, a gas power station. So all of those, those um, electrification uh, minerals, or we like to call them climate transition materials, are extremely interesting. Mm. And I particularly like the diversified plays on that. So um, particularly like um, low-carbon um, aluminium, extremely interesting aluminium touches almost all forms of um, climate change technology or abatement technology um, copper is similar um, another material that's particularly interesting is boron that people perhaps are, you know less um, less aware of uh, boron is essential in EVs but it's also essential for the fertilizers that give us better yields on our food that will enable us again to get to net zero um, so, you know, I, I'm particularly bullish there in terms of the materials. Um, otherwise, you know, I would certainly go back to perhaps less uh, less talked about, but certainly essential technologies in terms of, like, insulation of buildings, um, low-carbon building materials, uh, absolutely important. So, you know, we, we've certainly been focusing quite a bit recently on low-carbon cement. I mean, cement is, you know, around 9% of global emissions. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than steel. Uh, but no one really talks about it, but we're starting to see some really interesting innovation there around low-carbon cement. Okay, well, sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you very much for joining me this morning. That's Phineas Glover, head of ESG Securities Research for Asia Pacific at Credit Suisse, and you can hear him at the 25th Credit Suisse Asian Investment Conference uh, later on this morning. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this morning. In Australia, the SX200 down 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 off 1.25%. The Cosby in South Korea is also down about three quarters of a percent. We're looking at a fall of about 220 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Brent crude oil trading at $121.44 a barrel. Gold is at $1,946 an ounce. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The news is coming up, followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and Paul Zinnemann. The weather forecast, cloudy to overcast with occasional rain. Uh, it will be cool in the morning, maximum temperature of about 20 degrees. Some showers tomorrow, and then those showers will ease off gradually during the day. It's 17 degrees right now, 88% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.33, here's Andrew Shrovsky with the Heartfell News. Thank you, Peter. Mainland officials have said one of two black boxes found from the China Eastern Airlines plane that crashed in Guangxi on Monday is the jet's cockpit voice recorder. Aaron Tam with the story. The recording material in the black box appear to have survived the impact, said Civil Aviation Administration of China official Zhu Tao. He told a media briefing that the device's storage units were relatively complete, although an initial inspection showed that the recorder's exterior had been severely damaged. He said the black box has been sent to an institute in Beijing for decoding. Meanwhile, Mao Yanfeng, the head of aircraft investigation at the administration, said that weather along the flight path on Monday did not pose any danger to the aircraft, adding controllers were communicating with it after takeoff and before its rapid descent. A pediatrician is urging parents to get their children vaccinated in case there's a rebound in infections when schools resume in late April and a flight ban and hotel quarantine is eased next week. Dr. Alvin Chan, a member of the Medical Association, was commenting after authorities said schools could resume full-day in-person classes if 90% of the school population is vaccinated. 
Dr. Chan said this target would be difficult as only half of primary pupils had received one jab. He urged parents not to be hesitant as jabs are safe. It seems that it's quite slow to have the uh, vaccination in this age group. Up to now, with all the efforts, only uh, about uh, 58% of this age group of young children have been vaccinated and only 12% have uh, the second dose. And so within one month, uh, we wish to have rushed to have 90% from 58%. Then, of course, it's not really easy. The Center for Health Protection says 170 people with COVID have died in hospitals over the past 24-hour reporting period. Hong Kong recorded 12,240 new coronavirus cases. Simba the lion.